0: Welcome to this Reformation Sunday. I have some family news and announcements. Uh, first of all, our partnership in philanthropy. Don't forget that there are many ways to give. There's a little card in front of you that has QR code that you can scan. It has the order of service. It has Get Connected. And it has online giving. So feel free to scan that. There's also a wooden box at the back. Uh, you can feel free uh, to give there as well. Uh, some upcoming events, women's Bible study this Tuesday at 7.30 p.m., continuing the Simeon Trust First Principles uh, course, youth group. We're going actually bowling on November 3rd. So if you need RSVP, RSVP to me by November 1st. And then the men's breakfast is coming up in November on the 11th. And Creation Ministries is coming here on November 19th, and they will, uh, they will, uh, be here at 7 p.m. and giving us a little talk. It's free. There's no registration, but you are uh, encouraged to bring a free will offering if you are led to do that. We also have newcomer's lunch immediately following the service this Sunday, uh, today. And so if you are relatively new to the church, feel free to go on downstairs to the fellowship hall and have a a free lunch. Uh, Some family excitement. Uh, Congratulations to JP and Michaela Murakezi on the birth of their baby boy, Malachi Wade Murakezi. Also, we'd like to congratulate uh, David Lang and Sarah Chalupachuk on their recent engagement. So they are engaged. And finally, this coming weekend, this Saturday, Ryan and Catherine Carlson are getting married, and it's an open invitation to come. It'll be at the church at 2 p.m., so feel free to come and support them in that. Well, that's all that we have for, for announcements, but we do have some exciting things. In light of Reformation Sunday, we have two book giveaways. So, is there a newcomer here today? If this is your first Sunday here, do you want to raise your hand if you are brave enough to do so? Yes. All right, I'll come get you the book. And then, second, if you're a college student, if you are a college student, feel free to raise your hand. <laughs> okay, sorry, she had her hand up first. Awesome, thank you, Pastor Rob.
1: Thanks, good. Well, for our call to worship, let's flip to Psalm 104. Psalm 104. As we ask the Lord to prepare our hearts and our minds for this worship service, let's read these verses. Psalm 104, verses 1 to 4. Sorry, Psalm 105. That's a mistake. Psalm 105, verses 1 to 4, says this. O give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, sing to him, sing praises to him, Tell of all His wondrous works, a glory in His holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Seek the Lord in His strength, seek His presence continually. Well, let's, let, let's ask the Lord for help in this now. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a gift it is to gather together on this Lord's day to worship you, even to worship the living triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Father, help us to worship you in spirit and in truth, even as we behold your son, Jesus Christ, by the power of your spirit, uh, by the power of your spirit. So help us to lift up our voices now uh, to your praise. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's, let's rise and sing. Well, as is our practice here at Calvary Grace Church. We're going to move into a time of confession and repentance where we uh, privately uh, just confess any sins. To the Lord. And in in, in order to facilitate that, let's look at Romans 3, 19 and 20. Romans 3, 19 and 20. So here, the Apostle Paul has just established that all, both Jew and Gentile, are under sin, inwardly corrupt, fallen sinners. And now Romans 3, 19 and 20, Paul is really addressing, well, what what is the purpose of God's law? What is the purpose of God's law? Listen to what he says, Romans 3, verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. What can I ask this morning? Has your mouth been stopped before God? Has your mouth been stopped before God? Or are you still trying to perform or even justify yourself through your religious effort? Or actions. God's law demonstrates that we are law breakers. So, in attempting to keep God's law is not the path to being right with God. So, let's take time now to confess any efforts of self justification and even any law breaking. The law does demonstrate to us that we are sinners. It's summarized as love for God and love for neighbor. So, let's take time now to confess sin, any of our sins to the Lord. Look now with me at Romans three twenty-one to twenty six for our assurance of pardon, and then I'm gonna pray. So Romans three twenty-one to twenty-six. This is arguably, this don't I don't think this is an overstatement. This is arguably the most important chunk of scripture in the Bible. Romans three, twenty-one to twenty-six. This is the heart of the gospel, and even as we consider the fact that this is Reformation Sunday. We're celebrating the anniversary of the Reformation. Um, Just listen to these words. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned, that's Jew and Gentile, and fall short of the glory of God In Jesus. What we can see here, just to put it simply, justification before God comes by faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, and it's through grace alone. There's all those solas. So do you believe this? Do you believe that you have been justified before God through faith in Christ alone. If you do, you are secure in Christ. You are as accepted before the Father as Christ himself is. And it's through faith alone. The flip side of this, of course, is are you still trying to perform, right? Are you on the religious treadmill trying to gain acceptance based on your own efforts before God? Well, I would suggest to you, if that's you, you, you still do not understand the gospel. You don't understand the gospel, and you're still actually lost in your sins. So I would just say you need to repent of your religious self-performance and trust in Christ alone this morning. Now, as we move to our, our congregational, con- con- congregational confession of faith, I want us to look at point 10, which is justification. Justification, what I've just been talking about. So all the gospel partners here at Calvary Grace Church, we all confess this together, justification. We believe that God freely justifies the ungodly by faith alone, apart from works, parting their sins and reckoning them as righteous and acceptable in his presence. We believe that faith is thus the sole instrument by which we as sinners are united to Christ, whose perfect righteousness and satisfaction for sins is alone the ground of our acceptance with God we believe that the righteousness by which we come into right standing with God is accomplished for us outside ourselves and is imputed to us well amen as we consider those things let's rise and sing once again
2: well thank you to the worship team for that wonderful reformation hymn from Martin Luther and as we consider this Lord's Day and Reformation Sunday I invite you to turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark Mark chapter 12 I'm going to read the first 12 verses and just to note you're opening my guess is you're opening an English Bible and you would not have an English Bible were it not for the protestant reformation and william tyndale who died at the stake in order to bring us the bible in the english language so consider the great privilege it is to be able to read god's word in your own language here today mark chapter 12 verses 1 to 12 and these words in translation are actually the rendering very in in large part the rendering of William Tyndale. Mark chapter 12, verses 1 to 12, and this is the very word of God. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him, and beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head, and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so, with many others, some they beat, and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, let, they said, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants the reading of his word. Would you pray with me now? O holy triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we give you praise this morning. And we are humbled as we recognize that you have left a witness to yourself even in your most holy word. And not only that, Heavenly Father, you have provided for us a way for us to know it and to read it, even in the English language. We see that all of the work of translators throughout history, bringing then the original manuscripts of your very word and translating them into the vernacular languages so that simple people like us can know your word, to know what you require of us, how we ought to worship you, and how it is that we can actually be saved. We thank you then for various ministries that exist today, such as Wycliffe Bible Translators and their work in seeking to translate the scriptures into languages that don't have the Bible. So we pray for Tom Hindle and for Mark Strobert and others who are ministering in that work of Bible translation. We thank you for their ministry in this church. We do pray that you would provide for them as well. We thank you even for the the witness and heritage of William Tyndale who died in this testimony of seeking to put the word of God into regular people's hands. Lord, we see the fruit of that even today as the Bibles that we hold are the fruit of that sacrifice. Lord, help us to be those who are Bible readers and Bible cherishers and Bible obeyers. Lord, we ask that you would help us to be a Bible people even as the world is filled with all kinds of data and information. Help us to be a people that are oriented toward your data and your information, and even more importantly, your special revelation. You have revealed to us things that you want us to know about the past, about the present, and about the future. Help us then to orient our lives according to your word. Lord, we do pray that you would continue to help us As a church, to bear testimony in the midst of a a wicked generation. Give us wisdom so that we would shine as lights. Help us to have the gospel on our lips, to point people to Christ, not to political programs, not to our own mere opinions, but pointing people to the salvation that is in Jesus Christ. Help us to be an evangelistic people as well as a Bible people. Lord, we do pray that even for people attending here this morning, if there's anybody here who is not a believer in Jesus Christ, someone who has been invited, someone who is curious about the claims of Christ, Lord, we pray that you would do that special miracle of regeneration. You would cause them to be transferred from the kingdom of darkness in which they are lost, in which they are enslaved, and you would transfer them into the kingdom of light, even to the kingdom of your own beloved Son. So that they would be transformed, that they would be saved and delivered from the wrath to come. Lord, we thank you for this church. We pray that the gospel would go forth here today and through all Bible preaching, gospel preaching churches. We pray for Grace Church in Cochrane, Pastor Josh Carey. We ask, Lord, that you would empower him as he heralds the gospel there this morning. We also look forward to the soon return of... Of Pastor Gavin Peacock as he comes back from his sabbatical next Sunday We pray Lord that you would uh, help him and his wife Amanda to finish their time well in the UK We look forward to his ministry amongst us. We pray that you would speed their journey safely and well Lord as we consider your word as we consider the need ever ever present need in the church for reformation we pray Lord that you would start by doing a renovating, reviving, reforming work in each of our hearts, and that you would do it powerfully by your Holy Spirit, according to your word, and that you would do it now in our hearts. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Today, you and I are beneficiaries of the Protestant Reformation. You maybe didn't know that, but, but you are. According to the scholar Alec Ryrie, he said that Protestantism is the faith that made the modern world. So things like democracy, civil rights, free inquiry. I mean, we take it for granted that we have the right to google things we, we can use the old google uh, things like free market capitalism and you think well those things aren't explicitly in the bible well, actually they are in terms of the principles that scripture un, unfolds for us and then the way that then the protestant reformers took the truths of scriptures and then applied them to the church and to society in canada you may might not realize this but In Canada, the Bible transformed the dominion, as we used to be called. It was the dominion of Canada. For he shall have dominion from sea to sea, from Psalm 72. Uh, Toronto, for example, the city of Toronto, it used to be called York. uh, It had so many evangelical Protestant Methodists in the 1800s that it was nicknamed Toronto the Good. Now I've been to Toronto. I've lived in Toronto. And I don't know if I can say it's Toronto the good much anymore. And uh, I mean, there's all all kinds of stuff, all kinds of stories like that throughout Canada. Did you know that missionaries in the 1800s in Western Canada, missionaries were requested by Native tribes on the prairies because they had heard that there is this special book, this book, as one, one native guy said, this book that, that has wings, they said, this book with wings like a dove that comes to you, and they know that these missionaries had that book, and the native guys wanted to have the book brought to them. They were requested it. They wanted the missionaries to come and tell them about it. Meskipatun, the Cree, chieftain one of his most precious possessions was a bible in cree that he could read for himself now that story is not told in canada nobody tells that history anymore but the bible changed canada and when if you go out west here out west of calgary to the stony nakota reserve Out there, you notice that the English names that were used to communicate the tribal names in the modern world, they were given names of Protestant converts like Charles Chinicky, the Chinicky band out west here, or the Wesley band. If you don't know then the history of the Stony Nakoda, you would not know that there is actually this whole Protestant history going way back as a result of the witness of the gospel. Of course, lots of corruption, lots of bad history that came after that. But initially, the Bible and the Protestant Reformation, the fruit of the Protestant Reformation, transformed those communities. Now, Martin Lloyd-Jones, the famous Welsh preacher of an earlier generation, he said that we must recall the Protestant Reformation, not because we want to be antiquarians, but it is because, the reason is, we now are starting to revert back to the dark societies that existed before the light of the Reformation dawned. We're actually going backwards in time. Lloyd-Jones said, he said this, quote, You are aware of the state of the morals in this country before the reformation he was referring to england you were aware the state of the morals of this country before the reformation so vice immorality sin were rampant my friends it is rapidly becoming the same again there is a woeful moral and spiritual declension we are surrounded by the very problems that were most obvious before the reformation took place The moral state of the country, these urgent social problems, juvenile delinquency, drunkenness, theft, and robbery, vice and crime, they are coming back as they were before the Protestant Reformation. Now, Lloyd-Jones was speaking in, wait for it, 1960. So you tell me, are we further along in virtue or further along in vice since 1960? I mean, we're further along in technology, to be sure, but I don't think we're further along in virtue. Lloyd-Jones articulated our position saying, we are fighting for a heritage, for the very things that were gained by that tremendous movement of 400 years ago, even the Protestant Reformation. So, I think he's right. On this Reformation Sunday, then, many of you... I mean, you might be here and you would like hardly care about the important events of the 16th century. Like it's all dates and dead people, right? It's like, yeah, I'm not into that. Some of you might be into it, you know, kind of the nerdier ones. You're like, oh yeah, I'm all into this. Uh, But others are like, yeah, okay, whatever. But as we come to this passage of scripture, as we come to Mark chapter 12, it is the first in Mark's gospel where Jesus began to teach in that special form known as the parable. As we come to this, in this passage of Scripture, Jesus is concerned that we remember our heritage. He wants us to remember our heritage. He wants us to remember all of God's gracious investments in our lives. And there are many, many gracious investments that he has put into our lives that we've received he wants us to remember those to think of the investments in our lives in our churches and in our societies when we ignore that investment when we neglect it and even despise it or exploit it then we're in grave danger of committing horrible crimes and worst of all trampling the lord jesus christ the son of god under our feet so do you see how serious it is that if we, if we have this amnesia towards the investments of God in the past, we are in danger of doing wicked things in the present. And I would say that our churches today are in great and grave danger of rejecting the very precious rock of our salvation which God has given us. And the result is we end up in churches today treating The cornerstone, like a cobblestone, and that is the threat that we are under today. The parable, which Jesus taught, is often called the parable of the wicked tenants. But I think it could be described as the parable of the precious heritage, the precious inheritance. And that's what we're going to consider this morning, because today on this Reformation Sunday we read the English words of William Tyndale the Protestant reformer in translation of this passage and we have a precious heritage right right here right in our own hands and we dare not neglect it and just as a little just this is a little side note if you want to go you can go to a website like Bible Hub or something and you can find Tyndale's translation of the New Testament. And yeah, it reads kind of funny because it's Old English, but you'll be amazed at how much your Bible resembles the very translation in English that Tyndale did. So to think of the gift that we have because of what Tyndale uh, did for us to put the Bible in our hands, it's something we should thank God for. Well, when we come to Mark chapter 12, this parable, verse 1 sums up all that the vineyard owner invested in the vineyard that's the that's the that's the story and the setting we're we're in this agrarian context he began to speak to them in parables a man planted a vineyard and then he did all this stuff right he put a fence around it he dug a pit for the wine press built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country so all of this all of this work, there's all this stuff that, that the vineyard owner did. The owner did it. The owner did the work. Now this, uh, when I read this, it sounds like the investment of God in the land of Canaan as Joshua, you remember in the Old Testament, Joshua chapter 24, verse 13, Joshua went into the land of Canaan, the land flowing with milk and honey, And God told Joshua, he said, I gave you a land on which you had not labored, and cities that you had not built, and you dwell in them. You eat the fruit of vineyards and olive orchards you did not plant. Now, how many things are there in your life where there are things that you didn't build it, you didn't come up with it, you didn't create it, and yet you were the beneficiary of it. You had things established for you, things that were built in for you, that you got to enjoy the benefit of, that you had no hand in building or creating. Well, that was the case for Joshua coming into Canaan, but it was also the case in this parable that this vineyard owner had made this investment. He made the investment, and then he lent it out to the tenants, to the renters. So the gracious provision was already there. And he let others then be the stewards of that investment. They were responsible for its safekeeping. And, of course, if they were good stewards, the expectation would be that the investment would produce a profit. Right? So you, some of you guys, you you folks, you got investments, right? And when you put the money in, you expect that investment to have an ROI, right? A return on investment. What's the ROI on this? You know, that's what you ask. (laughs) You're like, oh yeah, it doesn't make any money. (laughs) I have more money I put in, I don't get any back. No, no, you're looking for a return on the investment. And of course, a vineyard, what's the return on investment for a vineyard? It should produce fruit, right? It should produce fruit. And so that's a reasonable expectation for the investment. It's very reasonable. And and for the stewards, who are then going to be the tenants of this very gracious heritage, it was reasonable to expect that they could do a sufficient job that then there would be fruit born. And it kind of reminds me, you know, one of the things that, you know, old farmers and old ranchers, they would often have a sense that the land that they were working on, it wasn't even really their land. But they were just stewards who were going to pass it on to future generations. That's the idea here as well. So, it was reasonable to expect fruit. We read in verse 2, When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. Now at this point, the parable is focused on the rights of the vineyard owner. It's the rights of the investor. And the reasonable expectation that he has is that there should be fruit. Now, you notice at this point in the passage, there's no mention of God, there's no connecting to Jesus. All we're seeing. Is that there's an owner? He's got rights, and there's reasonable expectations. That's the point. That's what that's what's supposed to draw you in. And so then, how did the stewards respond? You got to think. Well, how would they respond? Well, okay, are they gonna are they gonna return? Get a return on the investment? Is it gonna be uh, you know as the investment guys say? Is it you know five x, ten x, hundred x? You know all this kind of. Investment lingo, what's going to be the return on the investment? Is it going to be tenfold, hundredfold, thousandfold? We know there's going to be a return, but how much would it be? And then the stunning thing, and the surprise of this, the stunning things thing, is that the tenants, they don't send back any fruit. They don't even bother. And instead, in verses 3 and 4, you see it there there is then this horrific pattern. It is a pattern of mistreatment, of abuse, and of bloodshed. Instead of welcoming the servants to collect the fruit, they murdered the servants. So this is very shocking. This is not one of those, you know, flanagraph, nice Sunday school uh, stories that you tell the kids. This is... This is patterns of wickedness over a long period of time. And so this dramatic turn of events, it starts to fill out the picture for us. Because Jesus was teaching a parable about a heritage that was not stewarded well and was instead the scene of tenants slaughtering the owner's servants. Now, this is where now if you can kind of recognize those patterns you start to see where Jesus is going with this because Jesus would lament in Luke chapter 13 and verse 34 he said oh Jerusalem Jerusalem the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing So we see even Jesus, in speaking about Jerusalem, it very much is in line with this parable. Was Jesus condemning the Jewish leaders for their long Old Testament record of mistreating God's servants, the ones who had been sent to Israel? Well, it seems that that's what he's doing. You know, at the Babylonian exile in Jeremiah, chapter 37, verse 2, said but neither he nor his servants nor the people of the land listened to the words of the Lord that he spoke through Jeremiah the prophet so there was opportunity for Israel's leaders to listen to a prophet and they just didn't they just chose not to they didn't want to listen to it it was bad news they didn't want to hear it or 1 kings chapter 18 and verse 17 where king Ahab said to Elijah, is that you, you troubler of Israel? It's not like, oh yeah, you've come to get fruit, you're a welcome servant of God. No, no, you're, you make my life difficult, man. You, I don't want you around. And if you stick around, we'll, we'll, we might kill you. That was more the response in the Old Testament. Hebrews chapter 11 summarized some of the mistreated servants it might be a passage you're more familiar with in hebrews 11 you know that hall of faith hall of fame where it says in hebrews 11 verse 36 others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment they were stoned they were stoned they weren't stones they were stoned they were sawn in two they were killed with the sword they went about in skins of sheep and goats destitute afflicted mistreated of whom the world was not worthy wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth so it's quite a thing really that the owner of israel had had expected that israel would bear fruit and it did not it didn't bear fruit but the shock there is this shock of actually killing these servants. That's, that's shock enough. But the shock of this, of this response from the wicked tenants is not the surprise of the parable. Every parable that Jesus told was sort of a commonplace story that had a shocking twist. That's the uniqueness of a parable. It always has this, this kind of twist, a plot twist that you don't expect. And, and And that's what happens here. Because in this case, although the response of the tenants to the gracious investment of the owner was shocking on one level, there was something else that was on a different level entirely. Something else that was just way more surprising and dramatic. Look at verses 6 through 8 there. He had, this is the vineyard owner, he had still one other, a beloved son. So that language already is triggering in your mind to think about the Lord Jesus himself. He had a beloved son. Finally sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. Will they? But those tenants said to one another, we're not going to listen to him. No, they actually, that wasn't all that they said. They said, this is the heir. Like, this is the guy that's going to own it all. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. They saw a chance to steal the inheritance and take it for themselves. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard, verse 8. I, I mean, it's logical. It's logical the owner would think they will respect my son, the royal son, the Lord's son. His beloved son is the heir. The owner then has the reasonable expectation that the son would be treated well, would be treated with gratitude, would be treated with respect. Not to mention that the owner could have retaliated against the tenants for their wickedness already. See, this is, a, this is part of the thing that can okay, we forget about? It. You know, I mean, what's this owner doing? He, he probably, he he probably could have dropped the hammer a lot sooner, but you see the long suffering and the patience of God here. He he'd given this grace investment of the of the heritage, and then he gives this grace investment of giving, sending the personal servants, and then he gives the grace investment of his own son. And at each point, he didn't have to. He could have he cut him off right away. But at this point, the parable then reveals something very dark and very specific. Because the wickedness of the tenants is not mindless. It's not arbitrary. It's rather very calculated. It's deceiving and it's very cold-blooded. This is the heir. This is him. Come, let us kill him. And the inheritance, which is what they care about. They don't care about the owner. They don't care about the son. They care about the inheritance. The inheritance will be ours. We get it. We get the stuff. We, we steal it. If you want an explanation of all the corruption in the world, of all the exploitation, of all the instances of using and abusing, all of it, in, uh, all, all of it there, it is in this description. It, it's right here. You don't have to look at the news to figure it out. You look here. This, descript, this description, let's kill him and keep his things. That's what people want. So people are trying to kill the thought of the son and they want to kill that thought and keep it from their minds, from their consciences, from his claim on their time, on their talents, on their treasure. They just want to kill the thought of Jesus. They don't want Jesus being Lord over their marriages, over their money, over their culture, over their classrooms. They don't want it. So they want to put it to death but they want all the stuff that he has. They want all the blessing, they want all the inheritance, but they don't want him. They want the blessing, but not the beloved. They want the heritage, but not the heir. They want the crown, but not the Christ. And that basically, just in a simple way, that just explains what's going on in our society, if you didn't know. That's what's going on. It's not lack of education, or we need, you know, better government, or all those things. It's that people don't want Christ, but they want his stuff. You know, at this point, you know, pastors aren't supposed to do this anymore, but I'm going to make a, a Tolkien Lord of the Rings reference, right? You're not supposed to do that now anymore. But you know, if you remember, I mean, I'm not a Tolkien expert, I, maybe some of my boys are, but... You remember in Lord of the Rings, the steward, the steward of Gondor? And he says, there is no king in Gondor. There is no king. Even though the heir was coming on the scene, the inheritor of the kingdom, he says, there's no king in Gondor. Because the steward wanted the inheritance for himself. He wanted to hold on to it himself. Thus the end of Lord of the Rings analogies. I won't have any more. Uh, Just kind of throw that out there the tenants in verse 8 took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard so the the heir suffers and dies we could say outside the camp and so now it's starting to come into view because hebrews 13 12 says so jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. So you start seeing these parallels. The question then Jesus concludes the parable with is this, verse 9. What will the owner of the vineyard do? What's he going to do? It's a question. You know, there's all this gracious investment. All of this patience applied. All of this long-suffering. What will the owner of the vineyard do? Well, you have to conclude. He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. The owner had the right to judge them. The owner had been very patient not to destroy them. But killing the son is the last straw, isn't it? I mean, you would think that's it. Because haven't the stewards betrayed the heritage that they received? Haven't they trampled the investment underfoot? You know, ha- haven't they been criminally ungrateful to the owner? Aren't they guilty of murder many times over? Aren't they guilty of treason for their rebellion against the Lord of the vineyard? So, so this is where I've got to kind of get in, into your business a little bit. Because maybe you, up to this point, you've been a bit squeamish about the idea of a God who exercises wrath against the ungodly. Maybe you don't like the idea of the judgment of God. Well, then this parable is for you. It really is. I mean, it's for all of us, but it's for you. Because because you see that God is not trigger-happy. When people hear about the wrath of God, they think of someone who flies off the handle. They think of someone who has the red mist and freaks out, as we say. That is not not the nature of God's wrath. That's not how it's described. Instead, he is so patient that we we almost feel like people are getting away with stuff. And haven't you felt that? Haven't you felt that here? In this society? Don't you feel sometimes? It's, a, it's like people are getting away with stuff. Well, no, 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 no. No, no. No, no. They're not getting away with stuff. You know, the ways of God are not slow as some count slowness. But he is, he is long-suffering, not willing that any should perish but that all should come to repentance. He is so patient we see this manifest. He's so patient, and he gives opportunity, every opportunity for people to repent of their rebellion. Every opportunity. Now, um, this, is a, this is a thing where maybe you've been disillusioned with churches because you think, oh, well, you know, the problem with the church is that it's got bad PR, bad public relations, Right? we just got to improve our messaging. If we improved our messaging to people out in the world, well, then there, more people would come, come to church. Well, no, no. Everybody has every opportunity. There's nothing stopping everybody in this city to, from coming to this church or any other Bible-preaching church. There's nothing stopping them. They've got every opportunity. We're here, you know, if you want to hear it again, we're here next Sunday. Right, you missed it. Oh, okay. You come again. We got lots of opportunities. It's a it's a strange thing to consider that the word of God being preached and the gospel being held forth this morning is a further condemnation on an unbelieving city because they're not here. It's not that. Oh well, you know. Oh, we're so. We're so bad at our job. We might be poor at our job, but that's not the excuse. The opportunity is here. Sometimes we, even for our family members or friends, we like to make excuses for them why they're not believing in Jesus Christ. And yet they've got every opportunity. God's so patient and long-suffering. But, of course, if people won't repent of their rebellion, the logic is that God ought to punish, with capital punishment, those wicked folks. And that's that's the case here. Now, in Mark chapter 12, situated as it is in the Gospel of Mark, and Jesus engaging with the scribes and the Pharisees, you have to think for a second what the Jewish leadership was hearing from Jesus. And do you know what might be the most offensive thing that they would hear coming from Jesus' story? The most offensive deal? I mean, they, they perceive in verse 12 that he had told the parable against them. But what was the most offensive part? Well, I think it's the idea that God would take the heritage, the inheritance, away and give the vineyard to others. They like, say, how can you do that? We're the chosen people. You can't do that. It's ours. The Jewish leadership was so fixated on their rights to the land that they had forgotten God's rights to do what He wants, when He wants, how He wants. It's His stuff, and He can do whatever He wants with it. And this threat of destroying the stewards and giving the heritage of others is the great threat of the parable. And you can see this is what Jesus is doing. He's confronting the Jewish leadership that should have been embracing the Son and instead, they, verse 12, they were seeking to arrest Him because they want to kill Him. So, That's kind of the that's the dynamic as as far as how Jesus relates to Israel. And I and 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 it's easy kind of to point at Israel and and how they had sinned and how they had betrayed the stewardship that God had given them. But but I want to ask you though, that you're here. Is there a sense that we might be in danger of having our heritage taken away? having our heritage removed because maybe we want the inheritance without the heir because we want Christmas without Christ or we want Easter without Good Friday we want all the blessings we want all the benefits we want all the stuff but don't tell me what to do that's rampant in the churches I want the blessing but I don't want you telling me what to do And that's why then Jesus quoted from the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. It's Psalm 118. It is a messianic psalm there, you see in verse 10. A messianic psalm in that it predicts the coming of the Messiah and what he would be like. And it is a psalm all about two themes. It's about rejection and about inheritance. So it fits right in with how Jesus uses it. If you ever doubt, uh, you know, you're questioning how should I be interpreting the Bible, follow Jesus' lead. Jesus is the best interpreter of the Bible. So you go with Jesus. And Jesus uses Psalm 118. He says, verse 10, have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. And it is marvelous in our eyes. Now, scholars debate about whether the stone is a cornerstone at the bottom of the corner of the building or it's the capstone at the top of the wall holding it all together. I would just suggest if you know anything about that, don't get distracted by that because it actually distracts from the point. The point is the cornerstone is the essential stone. It's the essential stone. It is the keystone, the integral stone, the stone without which there is no building. That's the point. It's, It's that what was essential was rejected. That is the point. Now the vineyard was given to bear fruit, not just for the owner, but for the heir. The vineyard was intended for the heir's pleasure, we could say. The the investment was for the future. For the Son begotten of the Father. It was was for Him. But as John chapter 1 says, verse 10, He was in the world, and the world was made through Him, yet the world did not know Him. He came to His own and His own people. You know the verse? Did not receive Him came to his own people and his own people did not receive him the stone was rejected by the builders the stewards rejected the son jesus own people did not receive him and yet the key piece of the whole bible is that the paver the paving stone became the pinnacle or, or the leftover became the linchpin. The, that, that the cobblestone became the cornerstone. That is the point. Verse 12 of John 1, But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of god that is what was accomplished as jesus had predicted he said matthew 12 43 therefore i tell you the kingdom of god will be taken away from you scribes pharisees it'll be taken away from you and given to a people producing fruits the fruits of the kingdom so that's Jesus says explicitly in Matthew 12 what he had taught by parable in Mark 12. Jesus could say, I am the vine. You are the branches, John 15, verse 5. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. That is the fruit that he wants. The fruit of the Spirit that Paul will talk about telling the Galatians, speaking of the fruit that is produced by the Spirit in terms of a transformed life. That is is the fruit that is to be rendered to God, the owner of the vineyard. And if Israel or religious people Or people with a religious heritage of some type, if they will not bear that fruit, he will take it away and give it to others. He will take it away and give it to others. And yet, just think about this, the marvel of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that some of the wicked tenants, some of them actually repent and are forgiven of the crimes And they join with others as new stewards of God's inheritance. That's the wonder. That would be kind of the rest of the story. For the rest of the story is that the heir that was slain rose from the dead to deliver even those who crucified Him fulfilling the prophecy, Zechariah 12.10, that they will look upon Him whom they had pierced. If you're a Christian believer here this morning, You're looking upon Jesus whom you pierced. Not just the first century Jews, but you. Your sins are why He hung on the cross. It was was for you. Your fault. It's your fault that He was crucified. He was crucified for you if you're a Christian believer. And you look upon Him and now you glory in the cross. You're thankful for the cross. Your life is oriented around the cross because now you see that that stone that you treated like a cobblestone because of all of your sins and all of your rebellion, you see now he is the cornerstone. He's the cornerstone of my life now. If you're a believer, that is the basis of your life now. The cornerstone for everything you are and who you are. Not something else. Something else is not the base. It's not the foundation. It's not the cornerstone. It is Christ Himself. So let me ask you. What is the heritage of grace that you've received? You know, it's a little bit of a, you know, count your blessings, name them one by one. Count your blessings, see what God has done. Count your many blessings, name them one by one, over and over. You know how those choruses go when kids learn them. Very true, though, if you're like me, I get sour and cranky and forget all the blessings that God has provided. But think of that heritage. Think of the grace. Think of... Do you, have you had parents who prayed for you? Have you had family members who, who spoke the Word of God to you? Have you had access to come to a good Bible-preaching church? Have you had friends that loved you enough to say, Stop doing that. Stop it. You need to repent and flee to Jesus. All of those are gracious investments as God has sent these many messengers, these many servants into your life to point you to the sun, to, to worship and praise the sun, the air, and all of His rights to the fruit. All of those things. And yet, maybe, maybe instead of that, You've got into this habit of trying to squeeze, squeeze as much as you can out of the inheritance without submitting to God for it. You want all the good stuff, but you just don't want the giver of the good stuff. And it's kind of like the amnesia about the Protestant Reformation. A people can actually lose their stewardship of God's inheritance. You just look at the Jews. They, verse 12, perceived that that he had told the parable against them. Where Where is their inheritance if they reject the Son of the Father, if they reject Jesus Christ? If they reject Christ, they have rejected the inheritance. They don't get either. Hebrews 1-2 says, In these last days, God has spoken to us by whom? His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. Well, as I bring it to a close, just just a thought. Many years ago, there was a scholar... There was a scholar from India, his name was Vishal Mangawati. Some of you old-timers might remember when he spoke at our church when we were meeting over in Englewood. And Vishal argued that India became a modern nation, not because of Mahatma Gandhi, but because of the English, Protestant, Calvinistic, Baptist missionary, William Carey. And Kerry's gospel had a far-reaching influence throughout India's culture. And Vishal said, with respect to our topic of consideration, if you think about the stewardship of God's investments, he said this regarding the Reformation. Vishal said this. He said, Germany, the birthplace of biblical Reformation, became the arch-villain, the arch-villain of the 20th century, referring to the Nazis. Because during the 19th century, German theology undermined the Bible's authority. In other words, they forgot God. You, got, you read Alexander Solzhenitsyn talking about why, why could the things in Russia happen that happened so that the Soviet Union emerged and all of its atrocities, all of its wickedness. And he says very simply, because people forgot God. They forgot God. Protestantism, Vishal said this Protestantism has built history's greatest nations. Therefore, the world has the most to fear from Protestant nations that destroy the very foundations of their morality and civility. That's a chilling one. That's a chilling one. But what that means, though, is we've got to start here in the church. We have to start here being good stewards of this rich spiritual heritage that we've received from the Bible. And even from, for example, the reformers and their heirs. But more personally, and this is the most important thing, for each of you individually. You might be concerned with what's out there, but I'm talking about you individually. Personally, you have to ask yourself, are you in any way ashamed or ungrateful, or even ignorant of the many blessings that you have received that have brought you to this privileged place that you stand in today, even baby, even standing in this grace that you may be standing in. This is a day of celebration, the Lord's Day. We celebrate God's goodness. We celebrate the mighty fortress. We celebrate all that Christ is for us. We should be thanking God. And if you're like me, you're you're not as grateful as you ought to be. We need to repent of our ingratitude. And we need to learn to savor and to appreciate and to count our blessings and realize all that God has provided for us. For he has given us everything we need, everything we need for life and godliness. And when you see God's investment for your salvation, not just a generic salvation, for your salvation, for you, what he has provided for you, you personally, then all you can do is to praise him and thank him and say, oh God, thank you that you looked upon me as sinner and gave me such undeserved favor. Let me not forget that investment let me not forget all that you have given to me and let me praise you and that you, by your grace, may choose to use my little life and bear some fruit in it. Oh Lord, wouldn't that be wonderful if you glorified yourself by bearing fruit from my little old tree here. And if you did that, Lord, it would be very obvious to everybody that you would get all the glory. That's what we can hope for. And that's what we ought to be celebrating and asking God to do in our lives, even today. Let's pray together. Almighty God, I ask that you would cause us to be a grateful people. Oh, Lord, forgive us for our ingratitude. But Lord, we do look with hope, with encouragement and expectation that you can cause fruit to be born, even from us, people who have been made a part of your inheritance, though we don't deserve it. We were once your enemy, now we're seated at your table. Lord, bear fruit in our lives and glorify your own name, beginning today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to stand as we sing with thanksgiving to God. Please rise. Before I read the benediction from Revelation 21 and verse 6, just a reminder, the newcomer's lunch downstairs. If you're somewhat of a newcomer, you're welcome to come down and eat with us as we talk about the things of the Lord and the things of this church. But for all of us who believe in Jesus Christ, I want us to leave thinking about how amazing this heritage, this investment is. And and it is described in the book of Revelation twenty-one and verse six as a spring, a spring of water to the thirsty. I'm thirsty. I trust you are too. To the thirsty. I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. You could you couldn't pay for it if you if you tried. I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage. And I will be his God, and he will be my son. That is the blessing of adoption in Jesus Christ, that we would have the spring of the water of life to satisfy our thirsty souls. And we can't can't steal it. We can't even pay for it. It is purely a gift of grace. Embrace that today. Go in peace. You're dismissed.